Thank you for joining us on the Restoration Church Podcast. This episode is titled, As We Move, and is the conclusion of the Kinetic Series. In this episode, you will also hear from the Mayor of Durham as he joins us for worship to teach us how we as a church can engage our city. We hope you enjoy. All right, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, if you are a guest, and I see a couple, thank you for being here. Fill out one of those hello cards so we can get your information and um, keep you apprised of what's going on. And if you scan the little QR code on the back, it takes you to a welcome video where you get to hear about who we are, our mission, and our vision. I'll give you a short version of that. Uh, we are a group of Christians that um, want to love our city and make disciples that make disciples and live as a family on mission uh, in this city, pursuing depth and intimacy with God, right? So we sum it up, intimacy with God, intimacy with others. That's how we kind of sum up uh, our mission and our vision. It's kind of our catchphrase. And so uh, if you want to know Christ in an intimate way, you've got to know His body. And as you know His body, you can begin to see Him in a more clear and beautiful way as, you ser- as we serve one another. And so we're, we're pursuing that as a, as a church. Today we're going to conclude our Kinetic series. It was a four-part series, uh, taking us through chapter 4 of Matthew. We're kind of systematically moving through the book of Matthew. And it was cool how the Lord put us in chapter 4 at just the right time when Lance and I came back from the Sin Conference. We saw that Jesus in chapter 4 started moving through Jerusalem, especially in Galilee and in a couple of very dark spiritual cities. And it kind of lined up perfectly with who we are and what we wanted to do. And so... Uh, Remember, starting in Matthew 4, we see that Jesus started in a spiritually dark place. Right? He went to these cities and there was this prophecy fulfilled in the beginning of Matthew 4 that said, uh, and, and you, in the darkness they have seen a great light. Jesus was the light of the world, the light of life. And He moved in a spiritually dark place. And we saw in our ministry area profile in Durham where we marked out a little circle that we want to influence. Um, and that's where we're going to start, by the way. Hopefully you can have a citywide influence. But in that little circle... There's 36% of the population is spiritually dark, as, as in the spiritually most dark. 15% of millennials have a relationship with Jesus or have a relation affiliation with some type of religious affiliation. And um, that's the lowest of all generations. And so that's the spiritually dark place that God has put us. And through the Sin Conference, we learned that God had uniquely designed us in our depth groups, in our missional family groups, our worship, our strategy to reach millennials because they're relational and we want to reach people through intentional relationships. So we're going to move into the spiritually dark place like Jesus did. We saw that when you want to start a movement, the best way is to just join one that's already moving. And through a lot of prayer and realization of who we are, we realized that we have been, we joined a movement that God started a while back. And He's kind of called us and many other churches to get really serious about making disciples and stop just living as Christians in the culture, but making disciples that make disciples that follow Christ and are willing to give their entire life uh, on mission for Jesus. So that includes the single moms, that includes the, uh, the office executives, the nurses, the doctors, the Indian chiefs. It doesn't matter who you are, you can be on mission with for Christ. It's not just for those who go overseas to the 1040 window. That we all can live on mission for Christ. And we saw that Jesus picked up the mission of John. John the Baptist, right? Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what he was saying. John, uh, Jesus calls a couple of John's old disciples after John is imprisoned to come and follow him. And so he gets the momentum that John had started kicks that in and goes and starts moving through all of Galilee. We saw this last week. Healing every type of sickness. Ministering to everyone who is in need. And preaching the, the gospel of the kingdom. right? Which was that God had broken through this, this 
physical form of earth, the spiritual ideal God had become real in Jesus Christ and it was going to change the world, right? The gospel is an event that ushers in a new and joyful order of things. That's what a gospel is. And so the gospel of the kingdom is that Jesus is here and He was moving and the King had come, the kingdom is at hand, get on board, let's, let's roll with the new King. So that's kind of the recap of where we are. Today, uh, I want to remind us of the first day that we, we started this. When Lance and I came, we set up and we talked about millennials. And then Lance came up and he sat in a chair. Do you remember this? He sat in a chair and he showed you pictures, the Howdy Doody spirit movement. You remember that? Yeah, the most embarrassing picture of my life. So um, he was showing us pictures and there was a picture where uh, David Platt right, had... Um, a, a quote from our conference that said, when is the last time you had wept for those who are in need, right? For those who are broken. And, um, and Lance reminded us that we can have all the strategy in the world, we can come up with the greatest plan, we can do all kinds of things, but unless we have broken hearts and the power of the Spirit of God, we'll be completely ineffective, right? The Spirit of God has got to be moving us and we've got to be dependent upon Him and submitted to Him. And we've got to have broken hearts for our culture. So today I want to look at um, Micah 6.8. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty simple text. Uh, as we start to become kinetic, as we start to move outside of our, our community and into a community of people we don't know, there's three things that God is requiring of us. right? To do something, to love something, and to be something. Do something, love something, be something. So I want to go through these real quick. What do we need to do, love, and be? And then uh, Mayor Bell is going to come up, and we're going to hear from him, kind of ask him a couple questions about our city. And then we're going to spend some time in prayer together, and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So that's the plan for the day. Okay? All right, so he has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. But to do justly, so to do something, to love mercy, love something, and to walk humbly with God, be something. Do something, love something, be something. Do something. To do justly. To do justice. It's interesting. Um, our depth group, me and the guys, are in a book called Discipleship Essentials. And just this week, we talked about justice. What is biblical justice? That's like what our, our Bible study was on. What is biblical justice? And it was mind-blowing to me. It opened up my mind to something I'd never really considered or thought about and um, kind of convicting. The previous week we talked about love. What does it mean to love the body of Christ? Love one another as I have loved you. That was a command to the Christians for other Christians. And then, and then to pursue biblical justice is how we love the people outside of the church. Pursue biblical justice. So what is that? Uh, it's the word mishpat. I'm probably saying it wrong, right? Mishpat is the Hebrew word. It appears in the Scripture a lot, and it talks about two main things. Justice is what we usually know. To do justly is to execute justice, right? When something has been wrong, to bring about a correction, right? So if Zach uh, hits Caleb, justice would be for me to say, that is wrong, and then put him in timeout, or whatever punishment we give him, right? To inflict a, a judgment or a, a justice for a wrong committed. And that's, that's what we usually think of when we think of justice, right? Getting what you deserve. That's justice. But in the Scriptures, in the Hebrew Scriptures, when, when that word mishpat is used, it's often referred to um, what they call the triad of vulnerability. Or sorry, the quartet of vulnerability, right? It's often used most commonly to speak about taking up the cause and the care of widows, orphans, 
immigrants and the poor. That's what it's mainly like used for when Christ talks about uh, taking up the cause and the care of the disenfranchised. The cause and the care of the poor. The cause and the care of those who can't defend themselves. To get what they are due, right? It, it means giving people what they're due. It, whether it be punishment or protection or care or compassion, to give people what they are due. And we know that all men, all people, all women, all children are created in the image of God. And so they are due a certain compassion and love from the body of Christ, right? I mean, no one is without being due justice. So Tim Keller calls that the quartet of vulnerability, those four, widows, orphans, immigrants, and poor. And it basically just means the people in our society that can't do for themselves, either because of oppression or because of lack of education or something, when, when we see them being oppressed, when we see them not being cared for, we've got to stand for it. We've got to do justly. So when, when Micah says, what does the Lord require of us to do justice, to do justly, that's what that means, to care for the poor. To execute what is right and to care for the poor and take up the needs of those who can't defend themselves. God identifies Himself with this quartet regularly. right? He's the father to the fatherless. He's the defender of the weak. He's the redeemer of the broken. right? I mean, those who are disenfranchised, those who cannot do for themselves, God identifies with Himself more than anything. right? And we see this, this love of God even in the movement of Jesus. right? Who did He go and preach the Gospel to? The poor, right? He went into the poor. The poor gathered around him. We know they were poor because what were they doing? They were sitting out on the hill and they were hungry and so he had to feed 5,000 people, right? We know they were poor. They usually were not in the high society. The people who rejected him were the high society, the rich people, right? And Jesus talks about this. It's easier for a rich man to put a camel through the eye of a needle than to what? Enter the kingdom of heaven, right? Blessed are those who are... Poor in spirit, right? I mean, like, those who are poor, Jesus identifies Himself with regularly. We as a church should do that too. So as we move, as we become kinetic and move in our community, let's look for areas where people are disenfranchised, impoverished, uh, whether it be spiritually impoverished, right? The millennials. Physically impoverished. People who are hungry. People who are naked. We need to clothe them. People who are homeless. Help them find shelter, right? We studied Matthew, uh, sorry, Isaiah 58. Um, and Isaiah was talking to the Israelites about a fast that God had instituted where they were supposed to remember that they used to be a people of nothing. They used to be slaves in Egypt. And they were, they were supposed to celebrate this fast in which they were supposed to stop being about themselves and start being about the hungry and about the poor and about the homeless and about the orphaned and about the widows. And they got off track and they started using that time to quarrel and to suppress the workers in the field. And God was like, I could care less about your sacrifices and your fast if your heart is not there, if you're not doing what's just. just. And so Isaiah reminds the people in 58, is this not the fast that I have for you? Is this not the plan that you'd feed the hungry, that you'd clothe the naked, you'd take in the homeless, you'd heal those who are broken? God is about the, the quartet of vulnerability, as should we. James talks about this, right? He says, true and undefined religion is this, what? Taking care of orphans and widows in their distress, right? That's true and undefined religion. If you, undefiled religion, if you want to know what it means to do justly, to love God and, or love others in the way that God loves them, take care of orphans and widows in their distress. Seek out those who are disenfranchised, those who are weak, those who are poor, and love them. So Mr. M Mr. Mayor Bell is going to... Can I call you Mr. Mayor Bell? 
Bill's fine. Bill's fine? Okay. <laughs> Bill's going to come up in a little bit, and we're going to talk about areas of the city where maybe he sees that, that, that exact population where we need to move, where we need to move in there and take up their cause and their care, represent the gospel, execute justice. To love justice, to do something, right, and to love mercy. What is to love mercy? To love mercy, when I think of the word love, I think of the word choice. Right? Love, love is a choice. It's more than a feeling. It's more than an, a desire to... Um, the, the, the butterflies in our stomach. We like to say we love pizza or we love whatever. But what we're really saying is we choose something. Right? I choose pizza over hamburgers. Right? I love pizza. I don't like... like I, I love my wife. That means I choose my wife over myself. I love my kids. I choose my kids over myself. I love my job. I choose to be there. <laughs> right? I mean, I, I choose to be here. To love mercy means to choose mercy. Another word for mercy is compassion. Right? It's a choice we're going to have to make as we move into our city, as we're kinetic. As we're going to walk humbly with God, as we're going to do what the Lord requires of us, we're going to have to choose to be compassionate. Because the world is not going to enjoy us coming into into places that are impoverished or places that people don't want a bunch of white Christians to roll into. Let's be honest. Right? We're going to have to choose to be compassionate to people who might be evil to us, who might not be able to care for themselves. Right? And instead of our judgments, instead of choosing judgment and saying, well, when you get your act together, then I'll love you and care for you, we're going to have to choose compassion. And compassion is a very specific word, right? We see when Jesus stood on the hill looking into Jerusalem, it said He had compassion for them. Right? Why didn't it say He had sympathy for them? Or He had empathy because compassion is sympathy with motion, right? It's kinetic sympathy. I like that word, kinetic, right? Compassion is kinetic sympathy. It's you feel someone's pain and then you move to do something about it. We have to love mercy. Choose mercy. Choose compassion. See need and then choose to move towards it and meet it. Not just feel bad about it. Not just talk about it. Move. We've got to move. To love mercy is to choose mercy over judgment. To choose mercy over justice in some ways, right? I mean, getting people what they deserve, right? We've got to choose mercy. And then lastly, walk humbly with our God. Right? So, do something. Do justly. Love something. Mercy. Be something. Humble. Be something. Humble. Humility is an attitude of the heart, right? It's something that we are. We can be humble. It's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less, right? It's putting others before you. It's taking, well, you know, man, Sunday night, we could be at Mitchell Family Group, but man, there's like four ball games on and I really want to watch them. You know, it's like, that's, that would be thinking of yourself and not others, right? I mean, we could be doing... I could give this lunch. I got lunch and I'm on my way to work and I see that homeless guy on the side of the street. I could give him my lunch. Or maybe not, you know. It's, it's thinking of others more than yourself, right? It's the attitude Jesus calls us to have in Philippians 2, right? Do nothing out of selfish conceit or vain, vain conceit, but instead consider others as more important than yourselves, right? Consider others' needs as more important than your own. Take on this attitude, which is also in Christ Jesus, that although He existed in the form of God, did not require, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped onto or held onto. But He emptied Himself and took on the form of a servant. And made Himself subject to death, even death on a cross. The 
attitude of Christ to consider others as more important than ourselves. That's humility, right? To walk humbly is a state of having a heart that's broken for people and considering them more important than yourself. So if we're going to do justice and we're going to love mercy, but we're not going to walk humbly, then we're just making sacrifices that are like waving nasty rags before God, right? It's, it's creating a big pile of poo and presenting it to God as a gift, right? If we're just doing justice and just loving mercy and not walking humbly, then our heart is in the wrong place. And we've got to have broken hearts for people in our community or we won't do it in a way that honors God, right? We'll just do it as a religion. It'll just be a set of rules or a set of check-off things that we, all right, I have to go to a missional family group, and I have to go to that service project, and I have to go tutor a kid, and I have to go feed a homeless guy, and I have to clothe a naked person or visit somebody in jail. Check, check, check. God, are you happy with me? No, he's not. He wanted your contrite heart. He wanted your brokenness. He wanted your compassion for those people that shows that you have his heart for those people. And that's what he's pleased with. So we've got to do something, do justly. Meet the needs of the people. We've got to choose compassion over judgment so that we move continually into those broken places because broken lives are what? They're messy, right? And they can hurt you. Broken, li- broken people hurt people, right? I mean, people hurt people. But like, especially broken people hurt people. So if we're going to move into places of brokenness, spiritual brokenness, financial brokenness, relational brokenness, we're going to get hurt. The only reason we're going to go there is because we have a heart that's broken and we're walking humbly and we're choosing compassion over judgment. So as we begin to move, let's do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. Mayor Bill, would you like to join me? Cool. have a distinguished seat for you. Yeah, I couldn't find a cushioned one. So, this is what <laughs> so yeah, thank you so much for joining us today, man. Good deal. So, Mayor Bell, tell everybody who you are. <laughs> well, first of all, let me uh, give thanks to God for God's blessings and grace. Uh, I would not be here this morning. And, uh, Praise the Lord. In that very sincerely. Um, let me try to be as brief as I can. And then sure. Uh, I, I'm, and this is for persons who uh, may have just come to Durham recently. I've been here for some while. I came to Durham in 1968. Uh, I came here to work with IBM Corporation. I'm an electrical engineer by training. Uh, I moved here, not expecting to be in a long, maybe four or five years, and then move on out. Uh, but I got involved in my community. I got involved with some neighborhood situations which got me further involved with uh, county situations. I was living outside the city of Durham, in the county of Durham. Uh, and there was a rezoning matter that uh, my community was against and this president association I had to sort of carry it out. Uh, but in doing that, it took us about a year and uh, we eventually lost, but in losing I learned more about the county and the city. So I was stupid enough, young enough to say if you can't beat them, join them. So I ran for the Board of County Commissions in 1972 and uh, was elected, and that sort of changed my my uh, whole lifestyle and thoughts of where I was going. So I, I've had the good fortune of serving uh, almost 40 years in an elected position here in Durham. About 26 years on the Board of County Commissioners. I chaired it for 12 years. I lost an election in '94. I was re-elected in '96. Re-elected in '98. 
And in 2000, I decided not to run again. And because I retired from IBM in 96, and I was doing some other things I was very comfortable with. And some people came to me and asked me if I considered running for mayor. And that was in 2001. And that was probably one of the toughest choices I made because I pretty much decided the lifestyle I was going to be living. But uh, the people who came to me are people I had known over the years, respected, seen them in various forms. To make a long story short, I decided to run. I uh, fortunately I got elected in 2001, about 500 votes by the way, but got elected in 2001. And I've had the privilege of serving as mayor since that time. And I've announced that I'm running this year, and this will be the last year that I'll run for mayor. And this isn't a political thing, I was just trying to give you a little, little background of what I was saying. But I, I've had the uh, privilege of seeing Durham probably at a level that most people don't, uh, being an elected official. And uh, each year as mayor, I give a state of the city address, generally in January, February, where I talk about uh, where the city is, vision going forward, challenges, and et cetera. Uh, but in 2014, when I gave the State of the City Address in February 2014, I had a little bit different twist. I did the things I normally did, but my real focus was on challenging our community to deal with poverty. Because in spite of all the resources we have in this community, the Research Triangle Park, universities, new millennials that are coming here, and et cetera, uh, we're still a city, in my opinion, that has too high a level of poverty. Durham is the fourth largest city in the state of North Carolina behind Charlotte, Raleigh, and Greensburg. We're a city of about 250,000 people. We're a city that has no uh, ethnic majority. We're a city that prides ourselves on our diversity. Uh, but we're a city that still has too much poverty. Uh, we're a city that has probably about 16, 8%, 18% of our citizens that are living in poverty. And when I say that, if you talk about the medium income, uh, as the census tracts, census bureau tells you, Persons that are living below the medium income of persons we talked about that are in poverty, families that are in poverty. So my challenge to uh, my council was to begin to reduce poverty neighborhood by neighborhood, year by year, starting in the year 2014. So that was sort of a challenge that I uh, laid out. And we had a meeting uh, in an area of the community that uh, we put pretty much targeted. And what I wanted to do was to look at neighborhoods that was, were data-driven. I didn't want to be in neighborhoods people say, this is Alan Dover about what's going on. I really want to look at the data and see where it took us. And we identified some census tracts that had the highest level of poverty in our community. And the one that had the highest level, we decided not to focus on because we were already doing some work. When I said we, the city was already doing some work in that area in terms of housing, et cetera. So we chose the next largest area, and that was in an area called North East Central Durham. And when you look at that neighborhood, uh, there were some criteria that had been set up by the University of North Carolina shortly after I did my, made my uh, announcement about reducing poverty. And School of Urban Studies in UNC over Chapel Hill had gone through and looked throughout the state and defined what they considered to be distressed urban tracts. And there are about 160 of those across the state of North Carolina. And they defined the distressed urban tract to meet three criteria. They looked at the unemployment, they looked at the, uh, the per capita income, and they looked at the poverty rate. And if an area had those three criteria and they would be below a certain level statewide, they considered to be an urban distressed tract. There are eight of those in Durham. 
There are 106 across the state. But in spite of eight of them being in Durham, Durham was not in the top 10, which was a bit surprising. Raleigh was, Greensboro, Charlotte, Winston-Salem, but Durham was not in the top 10 according to the criteria. But we used that criteria when we decided which neighborhoods we were going to pick. And as a result, we moved into Northeast Central Durham. And the neighborhood we finally chose to focus on was a neighborhood of about 1,100 units of houses and, and homes and about 2,300 families that live there, 2,300 people that live there. So that's the neighborhood we've targeted to begin reducing poverty neighborhood by neighborhood, year by year. And I, I, I was very clear that this was not going to be an easy task. Because when you talk about reducing poverty, you talk about impacting people's lives. The easiest way to do it is give enough people money and they'd be out of poverty. We weren't, we weren't doing that. So uh, you look at other things. And it's not like when we are planning things downtown for buildings, like we're playing DPAC, you, you get the property, you get the contractor, you build a building after so many months. It's open, you cut the ribbon, and it goes on. That's not going to happen with poverty. So what I wanted to do was to try to set up maybe areas that we could focus on. So we set up task force on housing, education, health, public safety, jobs, and finance. And I didn't want this to just be a city-driven project because we're really talking about something that impacts our community. So I wanted just city council to be involved, I wanted the board of county commissioners to be involved, and I wanted the school board, the Public School Board to be involved as a minimum. And we had our first meeting uh, sometime in February of 2014, and we held a meeting at the Durham Rescue Mission on Austin Avenue, which is also in this targeted area that we're talking about. And the Reverend Ernie Mills and his wife were gracious enough to allow us to use their facility. We had about 100 people that came to that meeting, a cross-section of people across the city, elected officials, business people, university people, civic organizations, churches, and et cetera. And we sort of laid this plan out to them, reducing poverty neighborhood by neighborhood, year by year, starting 2014. We identified the neighborhood, and we talked about the six task forces that we wanted to uh, focus on, the ones I just defined. And what I wanted to do was to get at least an elected official from either city, county, or public schools to co-chair one of those task force. But we also wanted residents of the community that we were talking about to be involved, because you can't go on talking about reducing poverty in a neighborhood. You don't have the, imp to have the people you're talking about involved in. So that, that was very key, that, you know, the residents of those communities be involved. We had about 60 people at that time that signed up immediately that wanted to be on the task force. And since that time, it has grown. So the next thing we wanted to do was to really look at these neighborhoods and not depend necessarily on what the data was, but really to go door to door, to knock on the doors, to try to get input from the families that live there in the terms of those six areas that we were talking about. And when I say we, I mean, I knocked on doors, uh, other elected officials knocked on doors. We had students from Duke University, from Central, we had people from churches, just a whole group of people that came together to uh, do this inquiry. And once we had done the survey, we came back and decided which of the areas we felt we need to focus on. What are the goals? What are the things we need to, to, to do to try to deal with that? And once we had done that, we went back to the community and said, here's what we heard that you were telling us were your concerns in those six areas. Now you tell us if we're off base or not, do you want to add to it, whatever. 
So once we compiled that, we compiled the survey, we had a charge of each of the task force members to go out and see how they could improve the quality of life in those areas, set goals, timetables, and et cetera. And the year 2015 uh, is to be a year of execution. So what we are requiring the task force to do is to report periodic, periodically to the city council our public work sessions. We meet the first and third thirds of each month to report our work sessions, uh, where they are with our task force. Uh, we will have the last task force reporting at our September the 10th work session, and that's on public safety. And after that, uh, we will have a joint meeting, I think that's the 17th of September, where we bring all the task force together, residents, it's a public meeting, to say, here's where we are and where do we go. So that, uh, that is sort of a short summary of what we've been doing since we announced this. But when I received the invitation to be here this morning uh, to talk about some of the things we were doing, and as I sit and listen, this is what you just said. Uh, there are a lot of opportunities for people to make a difference in the city of Durham. That's the one thing I found out about Durham. If, if you want to get involved in making a difference in the community, there are many ways to do that, many outlets to do that. And you don't have to be an elected official to do it. But there are just uh, many opportunities to do that. And Durham, I find, is a very open and welcoming community, uh, in spite of what some people might say. We have our challenges, but I know the type of challenges we have. There are challenges across this nation and cities, because I've talked to mayors, large cities, small cities, and I know they're dealing with some of the same issues that we're dealing with. Uh, but poverty is one that I think is something we need to come to grips with. A lot of people don't want to talk about it. Sometimes you can see poverty is hidden in plain sight, but you don't want, don't want to deal with it. But I felt that this community had come to a point now where it's comfortable enough with itself that it could really begin to reach out and talk about these issues. I mean, if you were here in Durham 10, 15 years ago and you look at what was downtown, uh, it's sort of amazing as to where we are now. You, you really can't appreciate it unless you saw it you know, 15 or 20 years ago. Uh, but uh, I say to people, downtown is not Durham. It's a part of Durham, but it's not all of Durham. So we've got to be mindful of what happens outside of downtown what happens in particular in those neighborhoods that have been depressed for long periods of time, and how can we begin to effect some type of change? And, that, and when I say we, I don't mean the mayor, I mean we collectively, all the people that I've talked about and getting involved. So I probably took more time than you wanted, but no, that's great. to share that with you. And I'm open for any questions you might have. So um, one of the questions I have for you is, if you, if you could identify an area where a church like us, small church, um, so we have limited resources, big hearts. Uh, if, we, if you could identify an area where you could send 20 people today, right now, you'd send us right to get a job done, what would you want us to do as a, as a, as a body of faith, and, and how, would you hope, how would you hope that would be accomplished? Well, again, I, I, I'm probably being selfish, but the project that we've undertaken, the neighborhood that we've undertaken, okay. would be the neighborhood that I would direct you to. And when I say that, I wouldn't just say go there. I, I think uh, we've got this meeting on the 17th, which is an open meeting. Okay. Uh, but I certainly would invite you there to hear what's being said. And if you see something that you might want to get involved in one of these task forces, you'd have an opportunity to do that. But as I said, we've defined an area that we, we're focusing on. That, that would be my first priority. 
So you, you, you said you had eight areas or eight six. tracks? We have six. Six? We have six task force that are in this neighborhood that we're focusing on. Okay, so you said eight neighborhoods? No. No, what I said there, there are eight distressed urban census tracts in Durham as defined by UNC. Okay, okay, gotcha. But well, my point was that uh, of 160 distressed urban tracts, as the university has defined across the state of North Carolina, eight of those 160 are in Durham. Are in Durham. Okay. And what we've done is to choose one of the eight to, to focus to, on. To focus on okay. initially. You know, what we hope is that the template that we're developing, if it's successful, then we can move it to other census tracts across the city of Durham. And the other piece about that, although we're focusing on this census tract, it doesn't mean some of the things we are finding out now, or suggesting now, can, can also be implemented in other parts of the community. So it's not like this is ours, we can only do it here. If something is good and it's working, if another neighborhood wants to adopt it, uh, we certainly would, would uh, hope that they do that. Awesome. What time is that meeting in order? Uh, the meeting is at 5 o'clock, and it's at the Holton Resource Center on Driver Avenue, and I can get the address and send it back to you, but it's in the sort of the heart of the neighborhood that we select. Northeast Central Durham is a lot larger than the 2,300 people and 11 units that we're talking about. It's larger than that. Holton Resource Center is a building that used to be a former middle school that was declared surplus. Nothing was happening there. About three or four years ago, the city, the county, and the school system came together uh, to try to figure out how we might renovate, rehabilitate that school, talk to people in the resident in the neighborhood to say, what would you like to see if, if the school was done? And the net of it is, uh, we put about $16 million in that building, and now it's sort of a center for the community. The city runs parks and recreation there. Uh, the Durham Public Schools has classes that they run there, they have a nutrition school, et cetera. And the other piece that the neighbors were saying is they'd like to see a health center. So we went to Duke University and we got Duke to uh, put a health clinic in that facility. Uh, initially, Duke was thinking about establishing a center, center and a house. And I said, look, you know, here's what we're talking about. Why don't you guys come here? So, so that center is sort of a center for, for focus, and it's, um, I can get the address, but it's at, I, think it's at, I think it's 401 Driver Street, it might be 301, but I can get you the address. Absolutely. But it's at 5 o'clock, and again, it's the purpose of the meeting is to have all the task force to come back to say, here's where we are, and then begin to decide how we want to move forward at that time. Can you see like one of those task force being like maybe more of the greatest need is, like you were mentioning the public health issue, your education, like is there I mean, they're all a problem, obviously, okay. but is there one that kind of bubbles to the top? Well, that, that's, that's a good question because uh, what I, and I'm telling you something I haven't told anybody else, what, what I intend to do is once the task force have made their reports, uh, the next step for me is how can we begin to collaborate? And what do we think should be the top three priorities that we need to focus on? Uh, I don't want to disband what they've done, but the point is, some of those things overlap when you're talking about housing, jobs, health, education. Uh, so now that we see that, how can we now sort of begin to narrow it down to really how do we want, want to move forward? What area do we really think that we really maybe need to give more priority than others? Uh, so um, I don't know what that's going to be. Health could be it. Uh, public safety could be it. This a whole, whole lot. In fact, when we did the initial program, uh, when we had our first meeting at 
the Dam Rescue Mission, I only had five task force. I had housing, jobs, education, public safety, and somebody said, you're talking about poverty, what about finance? You know, how, how, how do we manage our money? You know, if we, you're talking about poverty, we need to understand money. So, and this is one of the residents that said that. It wasn't somebody like me that said it. And we said, you're right. So we set up a task force on finance. And one of the pieces that's coming out of that, in fact, the person that co-chairs, two people co-chair that task force, a councilman Steve Shaw from the city council and county commissioner Fred Foster, they co-chair it, but there are a lot of people involved in it. Uh, one of the ideas that has come out of that is to develop a uh, college savings program. Because one of the schools that's in this area is White Smith Elementary School. And they, that school has sort of been adopted by another group called East Durham's Children. I don't want to get into a whole lot of details, but the narrative is the idea that the finance committee has come out with, why don't we set up a college savings program where for every kid that starts that school and goes on, we'll set up a savings account of $100, and we'll ask the family to put $100 in. And the whole idea is not that this money is going to accumulate for somebody can go to school, which it would help. But the idea is you begin putting into these families' minds now that I'm in elementary school, I'm in the first grade, but at some point in time I'm going to school. Uh, so that's one of the things that came out of that, and it applies for the school, but uh, a lot of the kids that are in the school don't necessarily live in this targeted neighborhood. So this is an example where something is, is, could have an effect on persons outside the neighborhood, but it's a result of the type of thing that we're doing. It, is, it hasn't been put all together. That's one of the pieces that's coming out of the, the task yeah, force on finance. Critical. I mean, like, like you said, some kids, they just never even think about going to college. They never even think of it as an option for and this is, I, I don't, this is not an idea that originated in Durham. It really originated in San Francisco. In fact, I was at a meeting about four or five years ago, and the mayor at that time was talking about, he's not a lieutenant governor of California, but at the time he was mayor of San Francisco. And they were starting that program there. But um, the task force members obviously found out about it, and that's one of the projects that they've taken on here in Durham. So you, t you talked a lot about schools. Is there are there tutoring programs that churches could move in and help with? Is there it not just my mom was a principal for 25, 30 years. I don't remember how long, but it was long as I was alive. But um, she, she had set up in one of the schools, she was a way to educate the parents. So after school programs for the parents to come to learn like job training skills, putting together resumes, stuff like that. Are there areas in the school system that we could move into as a church? Uh, yeah, I don't want to speak for the school system, right, yeah. but I, I can tell you that I know that they will be open to that, but there is a process they go through when you talk about mentoring to, to do that. But another organization that, again, is within the neighborhood we're talking about is this organization called the East Durham Children Initiative. And the school that they've adopted is Y.E. Smith School. And they do mentoring. In fact, one of the county commissioners was telling me uh, she goes there once or twice a week to, to do reading and stuff like that. So I could give you the contact for the person to talk to okay. that if you had an interest in doing that and yeah. you know, be guided by them as to how, how they might, you might approach it. Okay. Any other questions? Uh, we're just going to spend some time in prayer in just a moment. As we, as we pray for you, as we pray for the, our, our friends and family in the city of Durham, 
You mentioned poverty being one of the key areas of suffering in Durham. Are there any other areas of suffering that we see in the city of Durham? I know it's easy for me just going to work back and forth every day and I put on my blinders. I go to my job and then I go back to my home and I watch my doctor move and I'm good, you know. So uh, um, He actually admitted that. How, <laughs> how, help us take a second to remove those blinders for people like me so that I can see the suffering that's in the city that you probably have a line of sight to that we don't have. Poverty being the top one, what are the others? Well, look, I guess I, I like to think about our issues as being challenges. And poverty is one of them, reducing poverty is one of them. I think another area that, that holds the city back from being greater than it could be is the issue of crime and the issue of education. And this is not an indictment on the Durham Public School System. They deal with the type of kids that come to them, and they have they do the best that they can. But uh, by the same token, I think it's something that we, we need to probably be focusing a bit more. I mean, this city has has quite a few charter schools that uh, have taken a lot of students that were in the public schools in, under their arms. So as a consequence, the public schools are left with children who probably have in a different situation than kids that go going elsewhere. So education is, a, is another area I think is a challenge that uh, we as a community uh, probably need to be more involved in. The issue about crime, uh, and we have crime across this nation, cities and et cetera. And in fact, I mean, I was looking at some numbers the other day, in spite of the things that have happened that you hear more headlines, uh, when I look at uh, violent crime and property crime, where it was when I became mayor in 2001. And I look at it where it is now, the latest number in 2014. And I look at it per 100,000, because that's the way you do it. I mean, when, you, when a city grows, you have more people, et cetera. All right. We're at, at the lowest point that we've had in terms of violent crime per 100,000 people, property crime per 100,000 people. But if you're a victim of that, it doesn't mean anything to you. I mean, <laughs> Victimized. I mean, all these numbers don't mean thing. You know, it's an issue. So, but that's that's something we're focusing on. I, I was, we, we had an incident that happened yesterday uh, in Durham. I don't have all the details. It was in the media. I talked to some uh, people. Where a young man who was, as I understand, it was contemplating committing suicide. Uh, and in fact, it was in this neighborhood that we're talking about. Uh, uh, and. The police came out and the team came out to try to deal with that. The net of it is, uh, uh, he was shot, he later died, and so we're having an investigation that's going on with that. But I, I was doing a questionnaire as a, as a candidate, you get a lot of questionnaires when you're going through the election year, and I was doing a questionnaire just yesterday, and one of the questions was about violent crime, particularly African-American young males between ages of 16 and 30, and what can you do about it? What are the issues? And I thought about that. I, I've been mayor since, at the end of this year, for 14 years. And when I look at the age group that you talk about, 16 to 30, that meant that when I first became mayor, those kids, were, the kid that was 16 today was two years old. The kid that was 30 years old today was 16 years old. Uh, somehow we could have maybe wrapped our arms around these kids doing that range 
in that age year, age group, and somehow help guide them to a different path, uh, they might not be in the situation they're in now. So when I look at that age group, you still got kids that are coming up. Somehow we've got to get a focus on our young people in this community. Either we do it individually or we do it collectively, but we've just got to find a way to help move them in, in a different direction. So the kids today won't be kids that we're seeing talked about now. And you know, again, the vast majority of young people in those ages aren't doing that thing. It's not an indictment on all the kids in that age, but the small minority that are, are having the impact that we see in, in, in our community. So that's another area that, a challenge that I think uh, uh, is in our community. And again, that's another thing you've got to have a group of people to join. And if you take it upon yourself to maybe adopt a mentor or spend time with a young person in an age group, uh, you'd be surprised at the kind of uh, change you might have in that person's life. Uh, any other questions? Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you. For filling us out, um, filling us in on what's going on in the city. And share with that. Okay, cool. Um, is there any way specifically we can be praying for you? Pray for me now and pray for me all the time. Yeah, okay. I mean, is there any specific thing that you well, like us to lift I mean, up for you? Again, I, with your family, with your life, with, any, with everything? Well, the whole, whole piece about what I do as an elected official, and I have a job too, but uh, I guess the challenge of being an elected official is uh, something I take very seriously, and uh, any support I can get from the man above, you guys, that means a lot. So cool. Keep me in your prayers, I would say that. All right, well, Lance, if you want to come up and start getting ready to lead us, I'm going to pray for you real quick, um, and then we're going to spend some time praying for the city, praying for the city council, our county, our, our school system, the whole thing, and how God is going to move us in our community. So thank you so much for coming today. Father, I thank you for my brother, Bill, and um, for calling him to be a leader in the city and how for so many years, Lord, he's been influential in identifying areas that need focus and then moving people into them. And Father, I pray that you would use us as a church to partner with our brother, Bill, and to... See to wrap our hearts around this neighborhood that he's talking about, or one of the other seven tracks in the city that, um, that just need the, rest the restoration of the gospel, the restoring power of Jesus, to change hearts, to change minds, Father, to lift people out of poverty. Uh, give us a compassion to move that way. Father, I pray that you would uh, instill Mayor Bell with uh, a strength and an endurance to keep going. Because I imagine that fighting poverty can be quite discouraging every once in a while. To hear negative reports or see that things aren't changing or moving. So I pray that you just encourage his spirit to keep being about the king's business. About identifying with those who are in need. And then moving others and himself into the community to meet those needs. So thank you for an example that he has for us. Thank you for this task force. For these seven task forces that have been put together. Give us wisdom on how we can partner with them and how we can see your kingdom come in Durham. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Love you, man. Thanks so much. Thanks again for joining us at the Restoration Church Podcast. To hear other messages or learn more about our church and how you can join us in making disciples and serving our city, please visit www.restorationchurch.us.